Good morning, everyone. So about three years ago, my family and I, we went on a trip to South Dakota. Anybody here from South Dakota? No? Okay. Close. So we <laughs> we went to South Dakota. It's a trip that I took as a sixth grader through Inner City Impact. And in South Dakota, in the Black Hills, there's a peak called Harney's Peak, which has been renamed Black Elk Peak now. And this peak is about 7,200-something feet high. And it is the highest point east of the Rockies all the way until you go to the Pyrenees Mountains in France. So for me, I think that's a pretty big deal, right? Call it in the Allegheny, any mountains in the Alleghenies or in the Smokies or anywhere like that. And so we, uh, we actually did some training as a family to get ready for this uh, hike. We went to uh, Garfield Park. We walked around. We went to Weston House. We walked around. We tried to build up our stamina. So it was about a three, about a three and a half mile hike, about four hours. Uh, you start, you start here at what's called Sylvan Lake, a real pretty lake. It's, uh, it's way up in the mountains, the lake is. And then you, from there, you go up the rest of the, the rest of the amount. So we got all ready. We got our food, we got all the trail mix, all that stuff. We were packed up, we had the right gear, Diana hooked that up. We started walking about an hour and we're feeling strong, but we said, hey, let's take a break. So and then we take a break and we, t- we, we looked and we saw this, uh, this map. So then we looked at the map and it kind of showed where we were and where the mountain was. And we were like, man, it usually, it says it usually takes the average person four hours, but we're an hour in and it's like this amount. We're almost there. Then we took about 15 steps more, and this is what we saw. So this is where you're sitting down, you're looking that way, and that is where you're supposed to get to. And that didn't look like an hour and a half or two hours away. That looked really, really far. But we were committed. We were kind of broken down. All the family looked at me like, did you research this right? Is it four hours one way? And four hours back, I said, no, it says four hours round trip. Like, I can read, right? I thought I, I thought I was right. So anyway, we went through the hard work. We finally got up there. Those last couple steps were, were really rough. We're really tired. Uh, kind of a little bit cranky, if I had to be honest. But then we finally got to the, the top. We finally got to the top. And what happens when you get to the top of a mountaintop? You guys know. It's just beautiful. You just stare out. You kind of forget all that stuff that was going on in your legs and in your chest. And you just look out and just say, wow, this place is beautiful. And you kind of feel like you're on top of the mountain because you are on top of the mountain. And you kind of ruling over everything. You stretch your arms out like you made it. But you did it. But you feel that way. Uh, But I also remember, like, where we started from. And so we just remember that journey as we were eating up there. Uh, it was just kind of funny. We were like, man, remember when we thought we'd never be able to make it, but here we are. Some people were like, don't we have to walk back? I'm like, yeah, we have to walk back. But, you know, walking back is downhill, so that should be better. So there's something about mountaintop experiences. And physically, the one I've been talking about, we see that when you get to the top of the mountain, you realize that all your efforts, it was totally worth it. You're willing to go through it because you remember that view. You're glad you didn't give up, because when you finally make it up there, you're like, wow, look at this. 
And there was a memory in all of us when we went home. We were looking up YouTube videos and trying to see other people when they got up there and how they felt about getting up there. Uh, when you look down from the top, you feel real proud of yourself. You feel like you really did something. And then one thing that was really cool is when we ate lunch up there, everything on top of the mountain tastes better. It was just regular sandwiches and stuff, but man, it tastes really good. Some cans of Coke <laughs> to celebrate, and it tasted really, really good. And then there's also this idea of what we call spiritual mountaintop experiences. And so I kind of have a list there. And similar to the physical, when you have these things happen, these great spiritual things in your life, Sometimes it happens at a conference or when you lead someone to the Lord or maybe you've had an opportunity to baptize someone. It brings a flow of joy and peace. And it just feels like, man, there's nothing on this earth that could compare. You're just really hyped up, really excited. It's one of them things you walk around with a smile when people think you've been doing something, but you've been doing something nice. You haven't been doing something crazy, right? Uh, you always feel like, man, things have changed. This is a game changer, right? Everything from now on is going to be totally different. This is a magnificent moment. This is a uh, turn, a big turn in life. Um, another thing is you start to really feel and you're aware of God being close. Like there's a nearness. There is a uh, God is here. God is actually working. You really feel that in those experiences. Um, it has an impact. It then has an impact in what you do. You start to change maybe your mindset. Maybe you might have been a little bit negative, but now through that, you start to feel like, wow, God can, God can keep this going on. Let's get this. Let's, let's, I want more of this. And you actually start to think about how, man, i like more of that to happen in my life. And so we know that Elijah literally just came off of a mountaintop experience. Last week, we talked about how Elijah was on Mount Carmel. And what are some things that happen at Mount Carmel? Well, we know that before he even got up there, he had been praying and he had a plea. And this comes from First Kings 18.21. And it says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal or Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So I don't know if you all know, but Elijah's been working towards what happened last week, what happened in that moment that we spoke about for a while. He actually prayed. James 5.17 tells us that Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And God used that drought to bring people's attention to what God was trying to get them to learn. So then Elijah's up there, and he has this miraculous wind. Right? He removes, he defeats the prophets of Baal. And the cool thing about it is he talked trash too. All of you all know that when you win and talk trash, it just feels a little bit better. So he talked a lot of trash too, and he still won. He proved that there was no such thing as Baal. He proved that there was really only one God. All the prophets were now gone, and they were dead. And Elijah's people, we hear that the Israelites, they repent. And later on, the rain, he prays again, and the rain comes back. So Elijah comes off of this great moment. But the question is, what happened, what happened when he came off that mountain in Mount Carmel? And for us as well, is what happens when we come off of 
mountaintop experiences in our faith. And so normally when, I, when I'm preaching through a narrative, I like to kind of preach the whole narrative first and go through the, the narrative and then think about application. But today I'm going to try something a little different for myself and try to do a running application. So I might pause and kind of relate it to, what's, to what I feel like the text is teaching us in terms of principles for, for our lives. So please join with me in that. Okay, if you could open in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 3. We're not going to have a chance to read the whole text, but I'd like to read this chunk and move to that. All right, and it reads, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. Some translations say, Then he saw this. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So Ahab, the king of Israel, talks to his wife and told her what happened. And everything changed for the good. It just kept going. No. She realizes all the prophets were dead, the prophets of her religion, what she believed. But we see that the royal court was not changed. Her response wasn't that Baal has been silenced and that it's done. Her response was, I'm going to get, I'm going to get Elijah. Her response wasn't Yahweh is God. Let's serve him. He proved that, you know, from, from, you know, when, when, uh, when you have people in high position, they get the, they get the whole scoop, right? So he knew that they had called and cut themselves and done everything to try to get Baal to do something. But nothing happened. Even though knowing all of that, the royal court does not, does not repent. They've been exposed, but they don't change. Elijah probably thought that what went on at that mountain was going to be an experience that changed everything. That was probably going to change Ahab and Jezebel. So what happens? He finds himself mistaken, and he's greatly discouraged. So he's fearful for his life. But I think a real big piece is that he's discouraged as well. When he saw the royal court's reaction, he arose and he ran for his life. And he went about 80 miles to Beersheba. And uh, if you think about it, if Elijah wanted to escape and get away from Jezebel, he could have just went to uh, Judah. He had a relationship with King Jehoshaphat and he could have been okay going there. But we realize here that he ran or he went and traveled a lot farther than necessary to escape the death threat. Death threat. So this speaks to his fear, but also a real big disappointment. He wanted to get away from that whole situation. And so he just kept going. Here's a quote from Spurgeon about this idea of what, come, what happens sometimes after that mountaintop experience. Spurgeon says, Elijah failed in the very point at which he was strongest. That is where most of us can fail. It is the wisest who proves themselves to be the greatest fool sometimes. Moses spoke hasty and bitter words. Abraham failed in his faith and Job in his patience. So Elijah, being so bold and courageous, fled from an angry woman. So Elijah won that amazing battle. But he didn't see the spiritual change and spiritual fruit that he probably expected. 
So this was a disappointing situation. He got threatened, and he was afraid. You know, there's times, guys, when uh, we often feel the same way that Elijah feels spiritually. We struggle when things that we consider or we thought were going to be apparent spiritual successes that were going to continue and different things or different sins we battled and we had a big breakthrough and we thought that would just never come back. But then it does and we just get really, really disappointed. We almost get afraid as well, thinking that, man, is there any way to stay stable in this spiritual journey? We get afraid and instead of standing there and working in that situation, we actually travel as far away from that situation as possible. I remember I, uh, I read a book, and the book talked about how a lot of us, we try to bring people to the church. And the book said something, it had a strategy that said, well, instead of trying to bring people to the church, why don't you bring the church to the people? So a good hangout spot around Chase School was the the little uh, grassy area that's there now, but it used to just be this big, empty asphalt parking lot. And that's where all everyone just kind of hung out and played soccer, older people, game bangers, younger people, kids. And so what we start, what I decided to do was I started to go and just hang out there as much as possible, probably like two, three times a week. They always played soccer. I don't play soccer, but I wanted to be with them, so then I started playing Soccer, Gerald would go with me, he remembers. <laughs> so we go, and then we, uh, we had so many people come in uh, that were just there, they were already there, that we actually started a PCM at Moody where people would just come and hang out. And I remember the PCMers would come to me and say, hey, what's our job? And I said, your job is just to be a Christian. This is, we're, just, we're just going into a place and hanging out there. That's what we're doing. So soon, uh, a lot of students know I'm a church guy, so one of the kids was like, Hey, why don't you, uh, when we take our break, and uh, Rebecca Williamson used to bring uh, snacks all the time. So they said, when we have our snack break, uh, Mr. Board, you should, you should talk about God. I said, oh, okay, no, no problem. So I talk about God, people walking down the street, yelling at each other, but we just did it right there. And eventually the weather got cold. So they asked me, they said, hey, this has been really fun. We like hearing, you know, about the Bible. What are we going to do? And I, this was before I came to Good News. I said, well, there's a church down the street with a gym. I'm, I'll go ask them to see if I could rent it. And Good News Bible Church rented it to me for super, super cheap. And so once a week for about two and a half, three hours, we would go and we would play sports in the gym. And we would uh, have a time where we got into the Word. And at first it was very, very tough. I'd be trying to speak and kids would be on their phone. And not only would they be on their phone, they'd be like watching videos, like three of them getting next to each other while I'm speaking, right? And so I remember one time I got especially frustrated by it, and I told three or four people, I said, you know what, you need to leave. You need to go. I snapped. I kicked them out. And they said curse words as they left. They were upset. You know, it wasn't wasn't a good thing. Next week came, and the first three, four people that came were those same kids. And they said they were sorry. They brought me a bag of chips and a Gatorade, which means they know me, right? So... (laughs) So then they started coming. And when that happened, I went back to the way I was disciple, and I said, you know what we need to do right now? We need to go to camp. We need to take this group to camp. Because at camp, we can get them away from the craziness of the, of the area. Nobody's cell phones works at this camp. Like, we need to go to camp. And they need to see God's, God's beauty, his creation. So we went to camp. And let me tell you all what I was thinking. 
I was thinking that if I could get these people in camp, and if I could get multiple times where I got to engage with them in the Word and God's beauty, that I thought we had about 15 kids come. I thought all 15 were going to become Christians, and then we would disciple them, and we would literally change the whole scope of what was going on at Chase. So I poured into this. I PowerPointed it up. I did everything I could to get it ready. I had Bibles ready. I had people back home ready for when these kids became Christians. I just felt like this was going to be the story. And so we went to camp, heard the Bible study. Um, After the Bible study, they were like, that's cool. And nothing happened, guys. Nothing happened spiritually. We had a great time, but that's it. And I remember when that happened to me, I didn't want to go back to that playground. I didn't want to go back to even messing around with just keep doing this and keep doing this. Um, I was really frustrated. I was really out of it. I think a lot of us have similar stories like that, too, where times you were like, you know what? I'm all in this time. I'm all in. Let's go. Let's go. You start hyping yourself up, right? <laughs> but then it doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. You know, you lead someone to the Lord, but then maybe three, four months later, they actually start exhibiting behaviors worse than before you knew them, right? So there's a lot of things that happen that cause great fear and disappointment. What happens is, is negativity starts to set in. Sometimes when you talk about witnessing, some people say, why? Why are we going to do that? I've witnessed a lot of times and nothing happens. You hear the language there? You hear someone talking about conversions. Yeah, they convert for a while, but then, you know, we never know. You could tell someone, uh, we just led two kids to the Lord. And they say, well, watch out. Let's see how they turn out. Don't get too happy. We don't, want you, we don't want you to break down if they start acting crazy. Have you guys heard these conversations? We've also heard people say things like, unity between brothers and sisters. I'm just going to have my group in church, and that's just going to be my group in church. There's no way we all get along. There's no one like that. There's no situations like that. And so all this negativity comes from a spiritual high that then isn't sustained. And when real life kind of hits, we just just kind of get into a pity party. So let's look at Elijah's continued behavior here. You guys can turn with me to verses 4 through 8, same chapter. Look at what Elijah does. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So he started to go even beyond the distance of Beersheba. He secluded himself even more. Is that not what happens to us when we're in rough situations? We start to seclude ourselves even more. As if we weren't secluded, he wasn't secluded enough, he even went further. This mighty man of prayer, remember he prayed and rain didn't happen for three years, three and a half years. He prays again and rain happens, but now listen to his prayer. What does he pray? That God would take his life. God, we're talking about depression here now. He's talking about suicidal thoughts. 
extreme, exaggerative language. And the irony of this is what do we know about Elijah? He actually, he actually, one of the people, few people in the Bible that never died. So, <laughs> so thank God that he doesn't answer all the prayers that come out of these mouths, right? Because then Elijah would have been done right there. And if you think about it, if he really wanted to die, he could have just stayed in the same, same spot. So that's how we know that he's being exaggerative here and he's kind of in despair. So Elijah misjudged himself compared to others in ministry. Do you guys get that one part where he talks about, let me read it again. He says, for I am no better than my father. Maybe he thought with his great victory, he was starting to feel himself. He was starting to feel like, wow, look at how God has used me. Look at this great victory. But then when it didn't come out with the spiritual fruit or spiritual uh, action that he desired, he's like, I'm no better than all these other people I read about. He's starting to use language that is really in despair. You know, other people have failed. I'm failing. Maybe he thought he was better than them and realized he wasn't, that he was a man as well, even though God had used him in so many miraculous ways. So what does he do? He uses, and I wanted to pause here a little bit because I think this is a big one. He uses an inaccurate measuring tool. Don't we do that in our spiritual walk as well? We use tools to measure what's going on in our spiritual walk that I don't know if we're supposed to use. Here he's comparing himself. Here he's measuring himself when he's in a real bad situation and not realizing where he is mentally and spiritually. But we do a lot of similar things to Elijah here as well. When we begin to despair, we start moving towards depression. Our language is exaggerated, it's extreme, and common sense and reality sort of go out the window. But do you guys notice what God does here? He takes care of Elijah. And specifically, he takes care of his physical needs. First, he got him some angel food cake and something to drink, and he gave him some rest. And so there's a real practical piece there. And this is a piece that Good News Bible Church is really good at. Uh, If you ever get sick or something really bad happens, this church will come alongside you and angel food cake you and give you something to drink as well. And I praise God for that. This is a really good church for that. Several years ago, in a span of 29 days, I had both of the mothers in my life pass away. And I didn't have to cook a meal for about 40 days and 40 nights, just like here. Okay? And And I'm not exaggerating. It was... It got to the point where we were like, we're okay. We had everything stocked up. We had leftovers going crazy, right? So we see that God took care of his physical needs. And when people are in that despair, spiritual despair, their physical needs being met is very meaningful. So God set Elijah on a 200-mile, 40-day trip to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, where he met Moses. And this shows that God did not demand, notice this, he didn't demand an immediate recovery from Elijah. And isn't that sometimes our mistake as other believers trying to help someone who's struggling? We kind of go and say, I'm coming to visit you. I'm bringing you food. I'm helping you. All right. It's over. You're done. No more depression. No more sadness. Come on. You got to get up. I mean, I've heard people like after minutes of someone hearing that someone, uh, like someone in their family died, they text them and tell them, well, you know, you can't dwell on this. It's like it just happened. <laughs> like who taught you that? Right. So we see God gave him time and didn't didn't make him immediately uh, fix himself or get fixed. 
He gave him time, and that's something for us as well. I've told this story a couple times, so I'm sorry if it's a repetition to you. But I remember one time there was a text sent to many, uh, many leaders who were on the same, uh, same text chain, and the person was saying, this person in my family passed away. Um, I just want to let you all know. And I remember I was the first person to respond, and I put, man, that sucks. That was my spiritual leader. Man, that sucks. That was my text. Other people responded. They had Bible verses. They had uh, God loves you. And I was like, man, my text is kind of whack. Like, I should have thought about this before I sent the text. But then the person called me and said, man, your text ministered to me greatly. I was like, oh, for real? Why? Oh, you just kept it real. Like, everyone else was was just kind of speaking around it, or I felt they were just, just throwing out things, you know? But, man, that really helped me when you just kind of kept it real, because death does suck, right, for a lot of us. And so I just want to tell you all that story because we need to be careful with the quick fix and be, be calm and, and, and stay and help like Jesus, like, like God did here to, with Elijah. So God sustained Elijah for the journey ahead, and he gets there. We don't have time to read First uh, Kings 9 through 18. But one of the big questions that comes up there is this question here. He asks him it two times. So the first, que- first time he asks him, he says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? And notice what he asked him. What are you doing here? But what did Elijah answer? Why am I here? So he started giving him excuses. Let's look at, the, let's look at these, let's just, this excuse. He says, and I underline I just to show how He's become so eternalized, he's not thinking outside himself. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. He's even separating himself from other people, from his own people. So he's really isolating himself here. And he says, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So not only is he isolating himself from everyone else there, he's also saying, a lot of I. He's eye-focused. I am the only one left. Is there any way for him to know that fully? But it doesn't matter when you go into depression. He's depressed. So one thing about discouragement and despair is that you get really despondent. You don't really want someone to help you as you don't really want the right answer. It just feels so bad. Basically, it seems like Elijah just wanted to be supported in his misery rather than being transformed or helped out of that misery. He just wanted to be supported in where he was and just stay in that. But God was not into that. So God sends something. First, he sends a fierce wind. And this wind was very powerful and it knocked things down, destroyed things. But the Bible tells us that the voice wasn't in there. And a lot of times people want some big thing to happen that will just shake them up. And I've seen people come off of big shake-ups that help them to change spiritually, but that doesn't all, that's not always sustaining. If you're always waiting for some big shakeup, if you're waiting for your preachers to get better, if you're waiting for all these things to happen, to line up, for your walk to get where it needs to be, it just doesn't happen that way. Another big shakeup, God sends an earthquake, but his voice wasn't in that earthquake either. Elijah has seen amazing things happen, miracles, the way he was fed with the widow, all these things happen. And so it's kind of like symbolic. But God actually sent these things, but it's kind of like symbolic that sometimes we think about all these things that need to happen for us to get shook up. Then he sends a fire. 
But God was not in that either. But what was God in? It tells us that there was a whisper. So sometimes we need to get in that quiet place with the Lord in prayer and in his word. And notice when Elijah hears this whisper, he covers his face. He knows he's in the presence of he's in the presence of God. Sometimes some of us, when we're in our when we're in our Bible and we're in our devotions and praying, I don't know if we you know cover our face at all or feel that we're in the presence of God. But even in these, these quiet, small times, we can be just like Elijah was. And what does that guy, what does that voice do? That voice gives Elijah three things to do. Okay? Where is that in my notes? Sorry. <laughs> One second. He tells him to get up, go to Damascus, and anoint Haziel to be king. Then he tells them to anoint Jehu to be king over Samaria. And then he tells them to anoint Elisha to take his place. When God finally talks to him, he tells him what to do. He asks him, what are you doing here? He says the same things to God. But then God tells him what to do. So if Elijah was honest and said what he was doing there, what would he have said? I'm doing nothing. I'm doing nothing. I'm not doing anything. I'm just here. All right? I'm on the run. But God tells him what to do. And notice what God does. God recommissions him, resends him out. So there's something very neat in this. One of the ways you get out of spiritual sadness and depression is in the actual doing of what God has put on your life from the get-go. So Elijah goes and does what the Lord tells him to do, right? God put him back to work. God got him away from his place of hiding in the cave of doing nothing and commissioned him back. We get out of depression and spiritual sadness by doing stuff, guys, by doing God's work. And then the Lord starts to put this little big thing at the end, which I, this is always real encouraging. What does he tell Elijah? With all that eye language Elijah was, was using, he tells him, you are not alone. You're not alone. What does he tell him? I have 7,000 men in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal, whose lips have not kissed his image. He thought he was only one. He was wrong 7,000 times, right? That's what he thought. He said, you're not alone. You're not alone at all. So an application, and really trying to bring this home, you guys give me a couple more minutes. When I think about just three situations, if you're depressed spiritually, you're in that, if you're in that right now, or you're moving towards that, if you're speaking in exaggeration, if you feel exasperated, you feel like you've been doing some of the right things, but you're just not encouraged to continue that work, allow the Word of God to change your heart. Allow the Word of God to recommission you. Pray to the Lord for guidance and care during this time. Allow your spiritual family to do its thing as well. If we isolate ourselves, it's really hard to get encouraged. We have to make sure that we allow our spiritual family to work with us. And remember, spiritual family, give them time to work on it. We don't want immediate change right away. I mean, that's what we desire, but it doesn't always happen that way. We want to give them time, but don't give them too much time, right? <laughs> uh, second situation, if you feel isolated spiritually, remember what God told Elijah, that Elijah was not alone. 
and you are not alone either. There are other people who are going through similar situations and struggles that you are. And there's other people who are going through worse than you are. You have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are going through it, guys. Open up and share your concerns to the Lord and to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And seek accountability and fellow believers to be with. Don't isolate yourself. Get back in the game. Start small and then more and more start building uh, relationships with other believers when you, as you're getting on your feet. And then lastly, I think this is really neat. One of the ways God helps Elijah is he sets him up for a discipleship relationship. Do you know how beneficial it is for you to be in a discipleship relationship? Whether you're the one being disciple or you're the one uh, discipling someone. Either way, there's just something that when that is going on and that's very strong in your life, those are probably some of the most powerful times in your spiritual walk. So God gave Elijah someone to disciple and they enter into that relationship. I remember when uh, some people who, who I have uh, poured my life into, my wife and I and our family, have, you know, they've been in our home, they've slept over, they stood in. We poured into them. And I remember one time they said, well, I got, a, I got a Bible study I have to lead at my church. Can I come over to your house and we talk about how to do it? And then I was able to hand them, like, lessons and PowerPoints and this and that. And I even gave them the outfit I wore. No, I'm just kidding. You just hand them everything to them. And then they sent pictures back to us of them teaching that Bible study. And you see the same PowerPoint that they probably fixed up and made it look nicer. But you see that same lessons that you gave being, being uh, continued and pushed forward. So some of us are ready to make sure that we are in re- discipleship relationships. So this is the last sermon in our series about Christians in the culture. And I just want to kind of wrap that up and say that we need to be filled in our relationship with God. All these people that lived in their society and had struggles, they were filled. Remember Daniel and his, uh, his prayer life and his prayer routine. Remember what Elijah was able to do and then how God set him up to do more in the future. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who knew the importance of, of knowing the standard and what line they were not going to cross, right? Remember how they were all great workers in their workplace. Almost all these examples were great workers and had a great testimony. And we will become spiritually worthless if we're not very much like this to the culture around us. We're going to be like Elijah and keep arguing why we are here rather than what are we doing. So what are you doing here? And that's the question that we need to answer. What are we doing here? What is Good News Bible Church doing here? And what we're doing here is we're, all of us collectively and, and, and individually are trying to impact these communities that we're in and beyond, right? With the gospel of Jesus Christ through connecting, discipling, transforming, and being on mission. And so I want to challenge each and every one of you all to do the work of the Lord. Last story. I remember one time my mom cooked a real big meal. I had come back from college. She cooked my favorite baked chicken, rice. She hooked it up, dessert. I ate, and I ate. I ate a whole bunch. Then my friend said, we're going out. So then we went out. I went out with them. And they, these guys wanted to go eat at Old Country Buffet. But I had just came and ate at my mom's house. So then I told the lady at Old Country Buffet, hey, I'm not going to eat anything. 
she looked at my body and said, you still got to pay. So, so then I paid and I'm inside Old Country Buffet, right? And because I was so filled with my mom's food, I did not touch any other food from the Old Country Buffet line. And I want you all to think about that. If you are so filled with God and your spiritual work, that when all this stuff in the culture has all these things to offer, that buffet line of sin and craziness and madness, you won't touch it because you're filled with the, with the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this series. Thank you that you put us in the situations that you put us in, whether they're good or bad for us at this time. I pray that you would guide us and that we would take the, the principles from these lessons, Lord, and apply them to our lives. Help us to do that in relationship as well. Lord, we pray against depression and isolation and pray that you would help us to always be thinking about that question of what, what are we doing here, Lord, and to turn to you uh, for that answer. In Jesus' name, amen.